This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, let's start out today's program by noting that if you're a citizen in Russia, you probably are wondering whether you are back in the USSR. On June 30th, Vladimir Putin posed in front of a bronze statue and appealed to his people to vote on a package of constitutional changes for the sake of the motherland that millions of Russians died to defend against Hitler. He did not mention the real reason for the vote to let him stay in power beyond 2024, when he is obliged by the current Constitution to stand down. The next day, Mr. Putin declared victory after a whopping 78% of Russians were declared to have approved the 200-odd changes, which together mark a new phase in his reign. He hopes to move from being merely the second president of post-Soviet Russia to being its lifelong supreme leader. The reports I saw in the media noted that Putin was now free to stay in office until 2036. Yes, 16 years from now. Here's a piece I like. Mr. Putin's liberation from the two-term limit was kept out of official advertising material because independent opinion polls showed three-quarters of Russians opposed it. The number of terms Mr. Putin has served as president is to be set back to zero, More power is to be concentrated in his hands. He will be able to fire judges of the Supreme and Constitutional Courts. Said The Economist, it was less brazen than rolling tanks into Red Square and declaring a coup, but only just. Keep in mind that this is the guy President Trump stood up on the dais next to and told the world press that he had no reason to believe that Vladimir Putin might be lying about Russiagate, but that he did have some doubts about his own intelligence agencies. Meanwhile... Another friend of the president's, Xi Jinping, has apparently waited for a lull in the world press focused on Hong Kong to basically end its semi-sovereignty. Let's again go to The Economist. A senior Chinese official called it a birthday gift for Hong Kong. It was a chilling choice of words for the biggest blow to the territory's freedoms since Britain handed it back to China in 1997. Close to midnight on June 30th, on the eve of official celebrations of the handover anniversary, China imposed a draconian national security bill on Hong Kong. It gives the Beijing government sweeping power to crush dissent in the territory using its own secret police and even its own courts. Meanwhile, over in Israel, a third friend of our president, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been for some time talking up the possibility of annexing one-third of Palestinian territory into Israel. It is possible that a lot of leaders around the world are taking a look at uh, the potential loss of their good pal, Donald Trump, in November, and thinking if it's time, if they're going to act, they might as well act now. After all, it's possible that next January we might have a federal government that actually cares about human rights violations. 
by the way, I, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I think we might all agree that the odds of that may increase come election day. By the way, we've been looking for some good news in this program for quite some time, and when we talk about election day 2020, there seems to be some on the horizon, but we're not quite ready to go there yet. I would like to mention, first off, that the Trump administration this week asked the United States Supreme Court to revoke the entire Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, arguing that without the act's penalty for not purchasing insurance removed in 2017, the whole law falls outside Congress's taxation powers. Donald Trump had vowed to preserve Obamacare protections for pre-existing conditions, but the administration now says the provision is inseverable from the rest of the act and has offered no replacement. This case was brought by coalition of Republican attorneys general. Arguments are scheduled for the court's October session. And how about this? A group of 175 legal scholars and lawyers specializing in international law have urged President Trump to rescind his authorization of sanctions and visa denials for international criminal court staff members investigating war crimes in Afghanistan, including those allegedly committed by U.S. forces. In a statement sent to the White House last Friday, the lawyers said that placing sanctions on prosecutors and investigators of alleged war crimes rather than the perpetrators is wrong in principle, contrary to American values, and prejudicial to U.S. national security. Among the signatories was Ben Ferenz, the last surviving U.S. prosecutor of Nazis at Nuremberg. Now 100, Ferenz was the leading prosecutor of the Einstadtgruppen case, which involved roving kill squads during World War II. Although successive U.S. administrations have considered the ICC an attack on U.S. sovereignty, the dispute over the court has come to a head in the two years since it announced an inquiry into allegations of crimes against humanity by U.S. forces in Afghanistan in 2003 and 2004 and its secret CIA black site interrogation facilities in Lithuania, Poland, and Romania. Last year, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo revoked the visa of the court's chief prosecutor. Standing at a State Department podium alongside Attorney General William Barr, Defense Secretary Mark T. Esper, and National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, Pompeo said, We cannot and will not stand by as our people are threatened by a kangaroo court. Anybody see any connections between U.S. attitudes and uh, the aggressive actions of dictators in other countries? And uh, Obamacare isn't the only issue the Trump administration has with health care matters. You may have noticed the White House spokesperson saying a few days back that the whole world was looking at the U.S. for leadership in the matter of dealing with COVID-19. Of course they are. We're doing such a great job that I'm sure the rest of the world is envious. Speaking of the rest of the world, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has now tested positive for COVID-19. Yes, under Bolsonaro, Brazil has probably been the only nation you can cite on earth with a worse track record against the coronavirus. Bolsonaro has downplayed the virus from day one and even fired health ministers who tried to take it more seriously. Now he has the disease.
This makes him the second chief of state we can think of that's come down with it. Boris Johnson, in the earliest days of the coronavirus pandemic, suggested that maybe the UK's best course of action was to just let things go and have herd immunity save everyone. This did not save the prime minister himself from getting deathly ill with the virus. We don't know at this point whether Bolsonaro will also become deathly ill. If he doesn't and manages to have a mild case, we fear is looking at his nation and the rest of the world and saying, see, I was right all along. It's no big deal. I cannot refrain from quoting Mark Twain at this point. Twain once said, I've never killed a man, but I have read some obituaries with pleasure. It's a mean thing to say, but the great nation of Brazil probably would profit from their chief executive keeling over from coronavirus and having him replaced with someone who takes the issue more seriously. The Australians are certainly taking the matter of coronavirus seriously. I was rather shocked to see that the state of Victoria has taken drastic action to control an outbreak in the city of Melbourne, or as they say in Australia, Melbourne. The border between Victoria and New South Wales, where Sydney is located, has been closed. According to CNN, the surge in cases has forced authorities to reimpose stay-at-home orders on dozens of suburbs. And on Saturday, 3,000 residents of nine densely populated public housing estates were suddenly put under total lockdown. Keep in mind the numbers here. On Sunday, Victoria recorded its highest daily spike of 127 new cases, including nine in those public housing towers. Keep in mind that in Australia's second most populous state, coronavirus has infected 2,600 people and killed 22. Across the entire nation, 8,500 people have been infected and 106 have died. Contrast that with the fact that in Florida last week, they added 10,000 cases on a single day. Now, I don't know the exact number. There might be as, as many Floridians as there are Australians at this point or close to it, but we're talking about 8,500 people since the pandemic started in Australia versus a one-day total in Florida. And, as predicted, here on Radio Parallax and in, in many other venues where people know something about epidemiology, we note that at least 19 states have slammed the brakes on plans to ease their coronavirus lockdowns after the U.S. recorded more than 40,000 new COVID cases a day this last week. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, told Congress to expect a very disturbing surge, perhaps 100,000 new cases a day. The U.S. has now topped 3 million infections with at least 133,000 deaths. Cases are surging across the Sun Belt. With Texas, Florida, Arkansas, cases are surging across the Sun Belt. Let's take a look at Arizona under Republican Governor Doug Dulce. Stay-at-home orders expired in mid-May after single-day highs were recorded in new cases, deaths, and ER visits. The governor ordered bars, gyms, movie theaters, and water parks to close for 30 days. He banned gatherings of more than 50 people and said that hospitals nearing capacity could activate crisis care rules for rationing resources. Down in the Lone Star State of Texas, under Republican Governor Greg Abbott, daily new cases exploded from 600 at the start of June to 8,076 on July 1st. The governor has moved to close bars and limit restaurants to 50% occupancy. We remind you that 
from last week's show that local jurisdictions have been hampered by, by the governor's order that they could not institute rules requiring masks. Meanwhile, in Florida, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis has blamed Florida's surge on young people defying social distancing and has prohibited the on-site consumption of alcohol at bars. But he insisted the state was not going back on reopening, even after it tallied a record 10,000 cases in a single day. Talking about the goings-on in Florida, the Miami Herald said that DeSantis opened up the state at the urging of Donald Trump, promising our economy would blossom and coronaviruses would stay low. With businesses across the state locking down again and Floridians falling sick, it's now clear reopening has not been good for our or the economy's health. Notes the Miami Herald, in the absence of common sense statewide leadership, local authorities have been forced to take charge. Miami-Dade, Broward, and Monroe counties all closed beaches ahead of the July 4th weekend. And the city of Miami mandated the wearing of face masks in all public places. One thing you can count on in something like this is that the Wall Street Journal will have its head firmly stuck somewhere where it, it shouldn't be. The WSJ had a different take on all this. It said that still, even with the latest outbreaks, America's doing relatively well in its fight against the disease. And I guess, you know, it depends on how you want to define relatively well. I mean, if we compare it to the outbreak of Black Plague in the Middle Ages, yeah, we're doing pretty well. Oh, and speaking of plague, there, there, were, uh, there was a headline noting that there was an outbreak of plague in Inner Mongolia, which is part of China. Mongolia itself is an independent nation. Inner Mongolia is a state in China. Apparently somebody there got plague. It was described as bubonic plague in the headline. But I don't know, and, and I hope that is not correct. Bubonic plague is a very nasty version of a Yersinius pestis infection. It's uh, pretty deadly, and it spreads easily, and I, I hope that the headline writer was just being a little overly dramatic. But something we've been stressing again and again on this program, and will continue to do so, is the fact that the President of the United States is behaving in a demented fashion. And if you're listening here in California and think that, well, maybe there's something to that man, maybe I shouldn't vote for him in November— It's not going to make a big difference. There is no way the state of California is going to vote for Donald Trump come November. But other states are hanging in the balance. If you've got friends, family, people you know in other states, particularly these swing states, talk to them about some of the statements that have been uh, made by the president. You can refer him to this program. We've talked about this at some length. But anyway, if we manage to convince you I don't know what it takes sometimes to convince people, but, you know, if we manage to convince you that the president indeed has bats in his belfry, then we ask you, we beg you to try and reach out to people you know in states like Florida, Arizona, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Iowa, and even Texas and Georgia to consider their actions on Election Day. Commenting on our chief executive's actions, Zachary Wolf, writing in CNN.com, said the president remains willfully indifferent to his ability to save lives. He refuses to put on a mask, saying recently that some people wear them only to show disapproval of him. Mr. McMillan? 
Yeah, that's pretty cuckoo. And I realize there's no way you're going to convince some people that Donald Trump is not the stable genius slash billionaire slash great leader he proclaims himself to be. Having a beer with a neighbor recently, I heard him remark that, you know, they're going to keep this thing going till November. Who's that, I asked. He said, the liberals, the Democrats. They're going to keep this coronavirus thing going right up till Election Day. I decided in that particular case just to have another sip of beer and let it go. Well, not completely. I did have to point out that there's been a tremendous loss of life due to federal government inaction here. But I didn't want to get into the whole possibility that Democrats were flying down to Brazil to secretly infect Jair Bolsonaro. I mean, you never know. Maybe that tremendous surge in cases we're seeing all across the state of India, the world's second most populous nation. Hey, maybe that's due to the machinations of liberals. Zachary Wolf did point out in his piece on CNN.com that others in the Republican Party are realizing that this, this, is, uh, this is not going well. Said Wolf, recognizing the scale of the calamity, wherein Trump said that people are only wearing masks to disapprove of him, Top Republicans, including Vice President Mike Pence and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, have begun urging Americans to wear face coverings. Said Senator Lamar Alexander, this simple life-saving practice shouldn't be part of a political debate. And noted Zachary Wolf, the subtext of their advice is that people will die when folks follow the president's lead. Oh, I'd say it's more clear-cut than that. I undoubtedly... The same number of Americans that died in the Vietnam War have died, in this case, needlessly due to federal inaction regarding coronavirus. That's based on several statistical studies done on the matter. I didn't do the stats on that. Can't vouch for it. But as a physician, I don't see how it could be otherwise. It has seemed to us for some time that as the bodies start to pile up in these sunbelt states, these red states, these states that have been following the advice of the president, that it seems likely that some people are going to start to have doubts about the wisdom of continuing to follow his lead. Writing about all of this in Politico.com, Natasha Korecki and Mark Caputo said Trump has built himself a sun belt time bomb. He pushed GOP leaders to reopen and to not worry about social distancing or masks. And the inevitable viral surge has only fed Joe Biden and the Democrats' argument that Trump is incapable of bringing stability or healing in a time of crisis. Polls now show Trump trailing Biden in Arizona and neck and neck in Florida and Texas. I've taken a good close look at this, and it's actually a little bit worse than that for the president. Astonishingly, Biden is in a dead heat with him in Texas. He's up several points in Florida. He's running neck and neck in Georgia and Arizona, states that would normally be considered pretty darn safe for the Republicans. And if you do an electoral tally right now, based on what would happen if the election were held today, the most conservative estimates have Biden at 268 electoral votes. Of course, one does need 270. The same conservative estimation, which I think comes from 270towin.com, has Trump at 204, with 66 votes considered up for grabs. What that means is Trump has to take all 66. These include the entire state of Florida, the entire state of Arizona, the entire state of Wisconsin, the entire state of North Carolina, and two votes that turn up in the state of Nebraska. 
Failing any of that, he will not be reelected were the election held today. Of course, there, this correspondent who's followed such things for, for many, many election cycles was stunned to note that despite long odds against him, Trump won in 2016. I'm not sure it was legitimate victory, but he made it stand up. He's the president. And he is a president that says that if we would just quit counting all these coronavirus cases, well, you know, wouldn't be such a big issue. He's said this repeatedly. Most people over the age of, say, six don't think like this. They realize that if it's hot outside, it's hot outside. And it doesn't not become hot outside if you fail to check the actual temperature. Now, a large percent of the population does seem to agree with the president that this makes sense. Not much you can do about that. Evidently, one of them was a mother down in Florida. She's a prominent anti-vaxxer. She had a daughter with numerous medical problems. Daughter's name was Carson Davis. She was a high schooler. She'd survived cancer and was living with a rare autoimmune disease. Her mother decided it would be a good idea to take her to a COVID party and deliberately expose her to the virus. Get it over with, you know? Carson Davis contracted coronavirus, as was the idea. Her mother, of course, was standing by to give her hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, neither of which proved effective. She went downhill pretty rapidly. When they took her to the hospital, the mother, her mother refused the option to have her intubated and put on a ventilator. She died two days after her 17th birthday. Evidently, her mother called her a national hero in the battle against coronavirus. We're not sure you know, where she stands in that, but we're positive where her death stands in the battle against stupidity. Her dying is very definitely on the side of stupidity, just as were the actions of the Trump team and that notorious Tulsa rally. The Trump campaign, undoubtedly under the direction of their fearless leader, removed thousands of stickers placed on seats to create social distancing between attendees. The management of the box center had printed up thousands of the stickers which read, Do not sit here, please. But campaign workers were videotaped pulling them off seats. The campaign told the arena managers they didn't want signs posted asking attendees to maintain distance from one another. And I'm not sure this is our stat of the day because these days we have so many stats on every program, but let's call it our stat of the day. Noted CNN.com, if 95% of Americans were to wear masks in public, more than 33,000 lives would be saved by the end of September. That is according to projections from the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Of course, their model predicts 179,000 deaths by October 1st a figure they dropped to 146,000 with 95% mask compliance. Well, I got news for the good people up in Washington. The numbers are not going to be that low. We predict again on this program that the national death toll will surely hit 200,000 around Labor Day, maybe before. And we also stress that we are still in the first wave, to which I add, I hope I'm wrong about that prediction. I really do. But months ago, we were saying 100,000 easy, 200,000 probably pretty easy, and perhaps many more. Some point not long after that, Anthony Fauci said, well, you know, maybe the number will only be 60,000. We said at the time we were not sure where he derived that number, but we suspected it had been plucked from thin air. Or, Mr. Millen points out, possibly fed to him to say, 
Fauci's in a difficult position. If he speaks too critically of the line of BS coming out of the White House and and from Vice President Prince, he's going to lose his job. We think he's trying to affect sensible change from within while trying to walk that tightrope. I know. Sometimes we're sounding like a bit of a broken record on this program. But I keep getting messages from people that say, you know, it seems like nobody knows anything in all of this. I try and respond with, no, in fact, quite a few people know quite a bit about all of this. Damn few of them seem to be politicians. But there are some people out there that know a thing or two about epidemics and how to deal with them. And there is data out there that you can trust, although again and again and again, we have to admit some of the most basic questions being asked uh, can only be answered at this point with, well, we're not sure. We share your frustration, dear listeners. Well, in the two and a half minutes we have left at the moment, I think I want to turn back to what is good news. The fact that the electoral predictions for Donald Trump look abysmal at this point. The Economist is placing the odds of a Trump re-election at 10%. Of course, it should be noted that on Election Day 2016, the odds from Nate Silver put Trump's possibility of winning at 7%, and he is the president. Nevertheless, we'd rather the odds were 10% than 90%. And we do have to chuckle a bit, uh, noting that Joe Biden (laughs) seems to be taking the... Electoral road that says, just shut up and let the other guys self-destruct. And you know what? It certainly seems to be working. It's a curious thing that whatever you may think of Joe Biden, and, and we're, not, we're not giant fans here, but whatever you think of him, he seems to be a likable fellow. And you know, damn it, that shouldn't be a major qualification to be president. After all, the guy we got now is definitely not a likable individual. And yet he is the president. And it does seem pretty clear with the benefit of 2020 hindsight that uh, it did not help Hillary Clinton that she was not perceived as being particularly likable. And doggone it, I don't want to make too much of the polling data. But as it stands here today in July, it is indeed looking bad for Trump. On the other hand, it's looking very good for the rest of us. As we close up, Mr. Merlin suggests we dredge up the old fire sign theater slogan for their mythical campaign of, for George Papoon running for president. His motto was, not insane. And while we don't know whether Biden could profit from adopting the slogan, not a demented psychopath, we think it might be worth a shot. And when you know it, Mr. Merlin's already on the phone to the bumper sticker company. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Actual mental status tests have proven that we are neither demented nor psychopaths. Both of us? Yeah.